Thanks, Brent. So before I uh, read scripture, let me just say good morning again and that it's really great to be here. I love um, being here and I love that we do this pastor swap every summer. I, I was trying to remember how many years we've done it. I mean, it's been at least five or six. It may be more than that. I don't know. Do you know? A bunch. Um, <laughs> so I love uh, coming here because it's a great reminder that we are not alone in our worship, in our life, in our work together. And hopefully seeing a strange face up here um, at least once um, is a good reminder to you that we're not alone, that you're not alone in your worship and life and work here in Hinsdale. I feel really honored that we at Covenant get to be connected to all of you um, in everything that we do together. So I'm happy to be here. So I understand you all just started a series, I think, last week on the Psalms, which is great because I'm going to talk about Psalm 3 this morning. We'll read it and talk about it together. Um, Psalm 3 is often referred to as a morning prayer or a psalm for the morning because of what the psalmist says in verse 5. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. So I think that's a pretty good way to think about Psalm 3, a prayer. Um, even a desperate prayer to pray in the morning. So let me read that for us, and you can follow along. It's on page 7 in the order of worship. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word that we have read and heard together that we're going to talk about for just a few minutes. And we ask now what we always ask in this moment, and that is that you would use this word that's written and that we have heard and read um, to point us to the word that is incarnate, the word who bears our flesh, our elder brother who's seated with you right now praying for us. Father, meet every one of us wherever we find ourselves this morning, those of us who feel really close to you and ready to hear your word talked about, and those of us who feel um, far from you and aren't even certain why we're here those of us who feel jaded or sad, um, meet every one of us in exactly the places where we are. Show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, someone who is close to me, for the sake of anonymity, we'll call her Allison B, um, <laughs> has what I think is a really interesting uh, tick in her sleep rhythms. Um, all right, Allison B isn't here. It's my wife, so I can talk about her. Um, 
we, we uh, later this month, we will have been married for almost for 21 years. So I've had a lot of opportunities to observe this particular tick, and here's what it is. Sometimes when she wakes up, she wakes up looking absolutely terrified. Uh, I noticed this early on in our marriage. At certain times in the night, if I uh, say her name or touch her gently or shake her gently, or if I make a sound uh, in the room when I'm getting ready to hop into bed, she opens her eyes as wide as saucers, and she looks at me in abject terror, just complete terror. And often that terror-filled stare is accompanied by whispering fear-filled phrases like, what's happening? What's going on? And... uh, when we were first married, it really, really bothered me that she did that. I mean, first, I felt like a jerk for waking her up and making that happen. But second, I also wondered what is going on in Allison's mind <laughs> that gets pushed so close to the surface in the middle of the night. Um, but as far as we can tell, it's just a thing. It's always been a thing for her. And uh, every time it happens, I just say, nothing, babe, it's me. And she is asleep again in a second or two. She never remembers that it ever happened. So it's just kind of funny and entertaining to me now. Um, But it would not be if she woke up in the morning like that. It'd be something else altogether if she woke up in the mornings like that. Because waking up afraid, waking up scared, is not what anyone wants in the morning. Uh, But that is the psychological space. That is the emotional space that this psalm occupies. It's that space after we wake up, after we have been blissfully unaware of everything that's been happening in our life for just a few hours, and we wake up and two seconds later, it all rushes in. And we remember who we are and we remember where we are and our minds fill up with all the stuff that we are struggling with, that we're in the midst of, whatever trouble it is that we're facing. Some of you uh, may have felt that rush this morning, two seconds after your eyes open. Some of us here this morning may have gone through long stretches of our life where we feel that rush of fear. That, that's the space that we occupy almost every morning. And then I would guess that in a, in a room like this, every one of us probably at one point or another in our life have felt that morning rush of trouble and anxiety at some point. And that's one of the reasons that we have the Psalms. They mirror our emotions to us. They mirror our situations in life. They give us a map for how to live faithfully, even in the worst of situations, even in the most difficult situations. They give us a map for how to deal with those things as people of faith. So Psalm 3 is a psalm for people like you and me. So imagine, imagine that this is your first thought in the morning. As soon as you wake up, the haze of sleep wears off. You remember who you are. You remember where you are. Imagine this is the first thought. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. That's how Psalm 3 begins. That's a pretty harrowing way to begin the day. And as we read and heard together at the very beginning, this psalm is a psalm that is identified as a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. 
Now, not all of the Psalms have historical indicators like that, but when they're there, they're worth paying attention to. So here is the world that that title evokes, all right? David is in the wilderness fleeing for his life. And he's not fleeing from a foreign king or a foreign army. He is fleeing from his own flesh and blood. He is running from his own son, Absalom, who has mounted this four-year conspiracy to steal the hearts of the people of Israel away from his father. And it's been successful. And now it has led to this coup attempt. And this coup attempt is turning out to be very successful too. And David has to flee from Jerusalem with a few loyalists barely escaping with his life. And he makes his way out to the Mount of Olives and he stops on the Mount of Olives. He weeps openly with all of the people who are with him over the situation that's going on. And then he runs into the wilderness. His betrayer child has taken his throne and now he is on the run. It's not difficult for us to imagine the amount of fear and pain and sadness and dislocation that David was feeling. And in 2 Samuel, you read about this. You read the story. And here's what the historian says about this moment in David's life. The historian says, This conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so it's no wonder David wakes up in the morning, and he prays, O oh Lord, many are my foes. Many have risen against me. But the threat is not just a military one for David. David knew that all of this was happening in part because of his deep failures as a king, as a man, and as a father. You know, we know David's track record. We know some of the stuff in his life. He'd committed adultery. The plot to cover it up led to the death of many innocent men, loyal men. And after that episode, the prophet Nathan came to David and said, David, the sword will never be gone from your house. In other words, your house, David, is always going to have violence attached to it. And so Absalom was the way that he was, in part because David was the man he was. And David knew it. And he's out there in the wilderness fleeing from a violence that was partly of his own making. Second Samuel, the historian there, tells the story about this flight, and there's this guy named Shimei who is part of the royal household, and when he hears that David is fleeing, he comes out and he meets David there to curse him. <laughs> and this is what he says to David, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. The Lord has avenged on you the blood of the house of Saul. So David heard that cursing and he knew that there was something to it. And that's why he wakes up in the morning and he prays, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Right? That's what David's hearing. God won't save you, David. He doesn't want to save you. Those curses were directed at the deepest part of who David was. All of David's skill, all of his cunning, all of his smarts, 
um, all of his talent, all of his leadership ability, which, believe me, were formidable and abundant in his life. All of that stuff had failed him, and his life was completely unraveling, and he was falling apart. So it, I think it's worth asking just for a minute what people like you and I would do in a similar situation. I don't know what it is that rushes into your head a couple seconds after you wake up. <laughs> I don't know what you start thinking about. I have my own list. It changes all the time. And I'm, I'm aware that none of us have ever been regents on the run from our betrayer children. I mean, if you have, that's amazing. This is, your, <laughs> this is totally your psalm. <laughs> But that does not mean that we don't have our own things in our life. You know, when our health or the health of someone that we love um, has failed or will be failing soon. When our job prospects do not look good. When someone that we love has turned on us, someone that we trusted, someone we believed was with us has turned on us. When we look at our lives and wonder why am I still alone? When we fear for the future of our aging parents? Or we fear for the future of our kids? Or when we just can't seem to make the pieces of life fit together, no matter how smart we are, no matter how thoughtful we are, no matter how talented we are, what do we do? Well, I ask that question just to highlight what it is that the psalm writer does. Here's what he does. He takes his gaze off of the trouble for just a moment, and he retreats into memory. He stops looking at all the stuff that's in front of him, and he retreats into memory. He doesn't do that to distract himself, and he doesn't do that to escape from the trouble. Memory is an essential discipline of the faith. It is an essential discipline of the faith, and when we practice memory, it brings freedom to us. When we remember, it lets us breathe. When we remember, it weakens our fear. And when we remember, our anxiety is weakened. That's exactly what he does in verses 3 through 5. This is what David says. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You are the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So we'll talk about um, one of those things in particular in just a minute, but for now I just want to say, listen to what he's doing. He is remembering. He is remembering how God has been gracious to him in the past, how God has given him gracious relief in the past, how he has shown him grace and done amazing things for him. So let me just say it again. Memory, memory is important for God's people. It makes up a large part of the prayers that we find in the Psalms, and honestly, it makes up a large part of what we do when we're gathered together like this this morning. You know, our worship services at Covenant look an awful lot like the worship services that you guys do here on Sundays, and so I can ask this 
do you ever wonder why your worship looks the way that it does? I mean, do you ever wonder why you do the same thing week in and week out again and again and again? Do you ever wonder why the guys up here and the women up here use the same words often when they're doing those things again and again and again? Do you ever wonder why we talk every week about the grace that God has shown to us in Jesus? Why do we just obsess over that? (laughs) Well, it's not because Jeff and Brent and Michael can't think of other things to do for 75 minutes, I'm sure, or however long. I don't know how long you go here. Um, I'm sure they could fill it up with lots of interesting things. But one of the reasons that we do these things every Sunday is so that we remember we are constantly rehearsing together what God has already done for us. We're constantly rehearsing what he has done for us in Jesus through his life and death and resurrection and ascension through the giving of the Holy Spirit that we celebrate at Pentecost. I mean, we're human, and that means that we forget a lot of stuff all of the time. And so we worship in part to remember what God has done for us. Memory is critical to growth. Memory is critical to maturity as God's people, and we need each other to do it. When people like us remember what is true about God and what he has done, when people like us remember what is really true about us and who we are as God's children, When we remember the true story of the world, it brings us freedom. And it lets us breathe. And it weakens our fear. And it weakens our anxiety. And if you need to see how it works, you just look at what the psalm writer does. He has remembered, and then the very next thing he says is, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves up against me. Now that is not because anything in this guy's circumstances changed. Absolutely nothing about this guy's circumstances changed. He is in the same world that he went to sleep in the night before. He is still on the run. He is still hiding out from his son. The only thing that has changed in his life is his way of being within it. And it is because he has remembered again the grace of God. So let me say something about one of those things that he remembered. I think it's a pretty important thing to talk about. I mean, to remember that God has been his shield all around him, that is, I I think, undoubtedly the most beautiful metaphor in the psalm. That's worth a whole sermon right there. To think of God as the one who lifts up his head in the direst of circumstances. That is a beautiful image. But, but the second thing that he says is, you are my glory. You're my glory. What, what does that mean? <laughs> and how is that even relevant in this situation? Well, in scripture, someone's glory is their essence. It's the weight of their being. I know culturally when we think of glory, we often think of, like, of shiny stuff. You know, We think of like halos and sunsets and sunrises and those have their own glory to them. But that's, that's not how scripture talks about it. We get closer to what scripture means about glory when we say that someone has gravitas. You know, they have gravity, they have a weight to them, they have dignity. 
when we say that about someone, what we're saying is that they carry a weight that we find compelling, a weight that we find beautiful. And every human being, every human being is made for that glory. It doesn't matter who we are, whether we're inside of faith or outside of faith or not sure about faith, doesn't matter. Every human being is made for that kind of glory. Every one of us are made to reflect and to bear this compelling and ultimate and beautiful weight. Now, I don't think you're going to talk about it later. Psalm 8 is a psalm that talks about it. I think Michael may be preaching on Psalm 8 this morning. You can get the recording. It talks a ton about how humans are made to bear the weight of glory. We are made for it. And the problem, of course, is that we often chase glory down in things that can never give it to us. We hunt, we're hungry. We're hungry for that glory for which we've been made, and so we chase it down in things that approximate it or things that stand in for it. Some of them are really good things. We, uh, we chase down glory sometimes by being really good at our jobs, <laughs> and that's the important thing. We do it by being fit or attractive or both of those things, if we can get them. We chase down glory by being good parents. With kids you can be proud of. And we chase down that glory by being good students with the grades and recommendations to prove it. We chase down that glory by being the guy or the, the woman who was sought out for advice, by being known as the one who's really spiritually mature, by being the one who is competent in life. All kinds of stuff like that. I mean, think about it. David has a boatload, <laughs> a boatload of that stuff in his life. He's a king, for goodness sake. <laughs> He writes music, he plays it like nobody's business. He is this incredible military leader. He is this incredible just leader, just leader of people. He killed Goliath, you know? All of this stuff is great. And you know what? All of it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing in that moment. Because it's all gone. And when we try to find the kind of glory and weight that we have been made for, that we've been made to bear and reflect and stuff like that, we are always going to end up frustrated and sad and often feeling ruined. Because all that stuff, even the best of it, it comes and goes. It's subject to the same vagaries and entropy and deconstruction that we ourselves are subject to. None of it can bear the weight of glory that we have been made for. It can never bear the ultimate glory. So if you're chasing down glory in the way that you look, as old uh, late David Foster Wallace put it, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start to show themselves, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If we chase glory in being competent in what we do, some of you know how this feels. Any dissent, any dissent, 
feels like a knife in the back, like you want to die. If we chase down glory in having kids that we can be proud of, who do the stuff we want them to do when we want them to do it, then we might just have a breakdown when one of them swerves the wrong way and does what we don't want them to do. So David is just remembering the truth. He is just remembering. He's using his memory and he's remembering the truth out there, hiding like an animal from his own son, his face streaked with tears, cowering. He is remembering the truth. God is my glory. He is my glory, nothing else. God is my glory. My own significance and my own weight and my own worth is found in God and in being his. And then everything else falls into place underneath that. God is not subject to vagaries or entropy or deconstruction. His inclination is always for our good and our flourishing. And church, that's the kind of truth that the Psalms hold out to us all of the time. So David now, he finally gets to this point where he can pray. He's actually gotten to the point now after he has done the memory. Now he can pray and he can say what it is that he wants. And so this is what he says. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Strike all of my enemies on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. And I know that some of those words are hard to hear. And we're supposed to shrink back from them, right? Because we're sophisticated people. Here's what David is saying. And we got to hear it for real. Here's what David is saying. He's saying, stop this insurrection, God. Squash it. And hit my enemies on the mouth. And then we'll see what they have to say through a mouthful of broken teeth. That's what David is saying. And here's another reason that the Psalms are really good for people like you and me. Because they give us a place to go when we think things like this. I mean, we could, on the one hand, be all aghast at David that he thinks such violent thoughts. <laughs> or we could be honest and go, thanks, God, for the Psalms. Because now I have a place to go when I think thoughts that are at least that violent and often more. Because here's what David is doing when he says that. He is speaking out his emotion, his fear, his anger, his frustration, his rage. He is speaking those things out to God. He's not holding them back. He is saying them to God so that God can do with that stuff whatever God wants to do with that stuff. And in doing that, the psalm gives you and me a model for faithfulness when we are afraid and when we are furious and when we are at the end of our own ropes. So through memory and through trust and through prayer, David has reoriented himself to the true story of the world. Through memory, through trust, through prayer, he has reoriented himself to the true story of who God really is and who he really is. He has rested in God, and now his fear and his anxiety have been weakened which is why he can end where he does. Now remember, at the very beginning of the psalm, 
he hears this taunt, and this is how he describes that taunt. There, that someone said to him, there is no salvation for him in God. There's none for David in God. But now he's remembered. He has remembered the true story of the world, and in doing that, he has remembered that it's not what that guy says that constitutes reality. It is God who constitutes reality, and now he can say, salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his to do with in his grace and his goodness and his mercy. And that leads David to pray something very extraordinary. The ending of this psalm is so strange to me because he prays, your blessing be on your people, which is a really strange thing to pray given the fact that a lot of those people are hunting him down to kill him. That is a very strange thing to pray, given that he has just prayed about broken jaws and smashed teeth. But in praying like this, David is a, a shadow. He is a pointer of this greater son of his that will come one day, his greater son, Jesus. Because when the waters come up to Jesus' neck, when when Jesus is surrounded by his enemies, when his enemies are literally in the process of executing him, he prays not for revenge. He says, Father, forgive them. It's astounding, but that is how the prayers of the Psalms, and especially the prayers of lament, like Psalm 3, that's how they work. That's the goodness that they give us in this great, graceful sweep from natural fear and natural anxiety to memory and trust and blessing and rest. They model a faithful life even in the most difficult situations. And so in gratitude, let us pray them and sing them and tell them to one another and remind each other of the true story of the world that salvation belongs to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for a prayer of lament, a prayer that is filled with fear and anxiety. Father, we thank you for that prayer because we feel that stuff all of the time and in it you have given us a way to approach you in the middle of those very difficult things. So we ask, Father, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make us into a people who can see even more clearly than David that salvation belongs to you because we have seen it in the work of your son Jesus for us. He loved us. He gave himself for us. So, Father, help us to be a people who are constantly reorienting, even in our anger and our frustration and fear, around the true story of the world. Remake us into a people who sing that new song. And we ask that you would do it for our good, surely, as individuals and as churches, but that you would do it for the good of the broken world around us as well. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.